Good morning, everybody, and happy new year. Uh, welcome to another year of United States Studies Center content and programming. Uh, and, and indeed, this, this kickoff webinar uh, today is a look ahead at what to expect in US politics and policy in what's going to be a big year uh, for the United States and for the world. Uh, and in 2022. I'm Professor Simon Jackman. I'm the Chief Executive Officer of the United States Study Center at the University of Sydney. And of course, the University of Sydney stands on the traditional lands of the Gadigal people, part of the Eora Nation. And we pay our respects to Elders past, present and emerging, and indeed to First Nations peoples from wherever you may be joining us today. And, and we are joined today by some of my colleagues at, at the U.S. Study Center. Uh, Bruce Wolpe is joining us, uh, and there is Joe Biden in the background there. Um, uh, Bruce's TV there. Well done getting that. Who's carrying that here in Australia, Bruce? <laughs> They're we're following them. They're following us. <laughs> okay. Okay. Very good. Um, uh, and um, Bruce, of course, a uh, non-resident fellow with the U.S. Study Center and uh, has been with us for, for a number of years now and uh, uh, a, a frequent and prominent presence in Australian media and commentary uh, wearing his USSC hat, which we're enormously grateful for. Um, we're also joined by uh, Grata Grigit, who is in Zagreb, Croatia. Have I got that right? Good Great. evening, Garana, to you. Good evening, good day, good morning. <laughs> um, thank you for staying up late there in, in, in your part of the world. And of course, Garana, uh, um, uh, a member of the faculty at the University of Sydney in the Department of uh, Politics and International Relations and uh, a secondee to the United States Study Centre and uh, we're delighted to have um, uh, Garana as part of our team at US Study Center and delighted um, that she's able to uh, uh, pursue her research interests uh, uh, with those trips back um, uh, to Europe. And we'll get into that actually, uh, will, be a, will be a key input uh, to today's webinar. We're also joined by Jared Monshane. Uh, Jared, good morning. Good morning. Uh, Jared, um, our research coordinator at the United States Study Center, formerly at the Council of Foreign Relations and Bloomberg and, and wore a few uh, hats in his time in the United States before, before coming to Australia and, and becoming such a valuable member of the United States Study Center team. And as we've been uh, introducing ourselves this morning here, uh, Biden's press conference just went past the one hour mark the, in, um, in in Washington DC, um, he's actually been making a little bit of news, um, and and I might get into that. Indeed, my my kickoff question was going to be to Bruce. Um, a look ahead at at particularly the legislative agenda, which I think for all of us who observe American politics from afar, um, you know, Democrats would would sort of. I don't think it's a, you know, a, a controversial point to make, Bruce, that some sort of impatience or some um, with one another in some cases, but with, with generally with the 
but on the one hand, the ambition, um, you know, that that naturally, you know, accompanies taking the White House, having having Congress and 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 the Senate, uh, House and Senate. Um, uh, but but that legislative agenda hasn't quite gone as far as many Democrats hoped it might have. And, and Biden was asked about that directly multiple times this morning. Uh, I'm just wondering if you could perhaps give us your take on the state of play with the Biden legislative agenda, what to expect between now and the midterms in, in 2022, and perhaps Bruce, um, even uh, summarizing some of the news that the president made about what's likely to happen to that legislative agenda. Uh, thank you, Simon. Garana, wonderful to have you from uh, Zagreb and everything going on in Europe. So important. And Jared, as always, terrific to be with you. Um, where we are today, there's a, just some context as to where Biden is going into the press conference that's still occurring in the White House. And I mean, he is the president. Then the context is at, the, at, at year one, he is the president, but he's not winning. He knows what he wants to achieve, but he can't obtain it yet. He made an historic uh, vice presidential choice, but very few believe that she is succeeding. He understands the world, but uh, war may break out over Ukraine and down the road over Taiwan. Um, he is not close to a nuclear deal with Iran and uh, Kim uh, Jong-un in North Korea is off the grid and testing missiles. Um, his party is united uh, behind him now. I know people talk about democratic divisiveness, but the fact is 98% of the Democratic Party in Congress has voted for the Biden agenda. And there are a couple holdouts. Um, after November, that, that will be a game changer, of course, with the political scene looking ahead to 2024 presidential elections, and then absorbing what will happen in the midterm. Uh, Biden came in and, and uh, today in this press conference made some optimistic points about where the country is, that there has been progress on COVID, inflation is being dealt with, supply chain and so forth, and that his Build Back Better program is really the answer to lowering costs uh, for the American people and that uh, it needs to be passed. And then he went into some tactical issues as to how that's done. I, I, I don't think that today alone really is a reset for him. Uh, and I think the big question looking at the year ahead in Congress is, have we seen the apogee of the Biden administration, what it can accomplish? Can he accomplish more? Can he really find the key to the lock on his domestic agenda and, uh, and, and get that through? Can he find the key to the lock on voting rights? Which actually in political terms in the Democratic Party, I think is as important as anything else because so many people of color voted for him. And a year later, they're saying, what have you done for us? And so the question of enthusiasm going to the polls, and we know Republicans are highly enthusiastic going to the polls, Trumpism, and just um, feeling that the country is in trouble on crime, on immigration, on inflation, other hot button issues. It, if, if democratic enthusiasm is waning because of underperformance by the president in the White House, that will hurt in November. So this will be a momentous year, very momentous year, as to how much more he can accomplish and secure his agenda before uh, Republicans have gains in the midterms, and then what that means, and um, and, and withstanding then the, the the next Congress that could come in in January. Thanks, Bruce. Um, um, on the tactical uh, announcements that you alluded to, there one thing the president did say I, I thought it was noteworthy: um, a, a breakup of Triple B, a will back better. Um, um, Biden echoed the words used by a reporter who asked the question, are you going to have to break it up to get it through? And he said, he actually used the words himself, um, uh, break it up. Um, I think 
you know, that's just, I think, being politically realistic and, and Biden's answer went on to, to say as much. Um, um, I think break it up actually can mean paring it down from where it is, but keeping it as a package and getting it through. So it, it, it's ambiguous now. I think he wants that ambiguity to see how far he can go with what he has. <laughs> But the point is, he hasn't given up. But still, the oh, fact yeah. is, the votes aren't there, and that is no, that, a real point of political danger for him. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Um, um, the other point I want to draw out, um, I think we'll just do a, wh a whip around um, the voting rights question. I think is a monster, um, but I'll sort of I'll, I'll come back to that uh, in a moment. Um, what, what I might do is, is Garana, um, come to you um, <laughs> with Australian ears on this press conference, um, Russia, 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 Russia as the foreign policy challenge. Um, I, I might have missed it um, as I put a business shirt on for, um, for the webinar. And, and, um, but, um, 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 but there was... I only heard really one question about China, and that is, are you ready to take tariffs off? It wasn't really through a security prism, at least the question I heard. I, I might have missed another one. But um, but boy, boy, if you're listening to that press conference from this part of the world, it's very, very clear that um, certainly among the American journalists, the commentariat uh, class, um, the focus is very much across the Atlantic, wondering what Putin might do next and what NATO and the US might do in response. Uh, you, you'll read out, uh, Garana. Yeah, thank you, Simon. And uh, likewise, great to be uh, with the rest of the team, even uh, if I'm not physically there. Um, so um, I have no idea what Putin will do, but certainly it is true that uh, all eyes are currently on Russia. And it kind of strikes me as, you know, history, very recent history repeating itself because we had another democratic president that wanted to look towards the Indo-Pacific, but then got uh, very much uh, entwined into uh, all of the, the kind of uh, security affairs and, and deterioration um of of uh, uh security uh in uh europe and obviously we don't need to go uh much further than just seven uh or so years uh, ago when when all of that was happening um so um what we saw uh, really in that answer to David Sanger uh, uh, from New York Times was Biden, uh, in my reading, actually uh, opening some space for still for dialogue with Russia. And what I think was encouraging over the, the past week, even if we didn't get to any major breakthroughs, was the fact that the dialogue continued and it actually continues as we now uh, know uh, Anthony Blinken, the Secretary of State, and Sergei Lavrov, uh, his Russian counterpart, will be meeting uh, for another meeting um, on Friday. So um, what we see in terms of 
just uh, US-Russia relations is obviously that, you know, there is this kind of uh, set bandwidth on part of the administration uh, to deal with uh, foreign policy issues, which then choose up potentially, you know, the, the kind of broader space, not to say that people aren't dealing with Russia, with, sorry, with China at the moment, but that certainly this is something uh, that takes precedence over other issues. And again, uh, this has to be said in the context also for Australia and for uh, actually regional audiences, and I'm talking about the Indo-Pacific region, uh, that there is this uh, maybe a, a kind of a, a vindication or, or uh, even validation of the, some of those fears when Biden was getting into the office that because uh, this administration was so oriented towards transatlantic affairs, which was great for Europeans, you know, it meant that maybe the Indo-Pacific is going to get sidelined. And then we obviously saw what happened with the announcement of AUKUS and so on. And now it kind of feels, at least for the Indo-Pac, that again, it's it's being uh, somewhat deprioritized, uh, given the, the kind of acuteness of this threat, which shouldn't be underplayed, but at the same time, we also uh, shouldn't be uh, overplaying it and, and augmenting it uh, at the same time, because there is also uh, a part of that story which, uh, you know, um, goes towards uh, the, the kind of, you know, Putin being this, uh, uh, um, well, I mean, a good tactician, maybe uh, not a great uh, strategist necessarily, but he, he seems to play those cards well when, when he's handed those and he continues to be unhappy with security architecture in Europe, which obviously is what what is um, propelling what has propelled this and what is uh, further further generating the crisis. Thanks, Grant. I want to I want to come back to that in a moment in the context of U.S. domestic politics. That that um, um, just to put it in the, in everybody's mind, expect to, me to come back to you on this one, but. But Russia v China as as things that uh, the Republicans will run on um, against Biden and the Democrats in 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 November. Um, but hold that thought, um, uh, Jared. Coming to you, um, look. One of the things that we're tracking at the U.S. Study Center, um, we're, we're currently working our way through a, a kind of polling data uh, that we we just got back from the field on generally around the question about um, social cohesion uh, in, in the United States at the moment. Um, I mean, we haven't talked about Republicans yet. So far, our 15 minutes of conversation means very much focus on on what Biden's up to. But I'm wondering if, if you could give us a, perhaps a, a few thoughts about um, an assessment of the, of the current state of the country more broadly as we head in uh, to this uh, election context, and and indeed it it goes goes to some of the issues we were just talking about with Bruce, and that is the ability of Biden to get any compromise across the aisle, and indeed to some extent holding his own party together in the face of you know incredible levels of polarization uh, in in the United States. Why is this the case, Jared, and and what is it? How's it going to play out in the specific context of a of a midterm election year? Yeah, I think um, as as someone still uh, in their 30s, we're, we're, my generation and younger, we're all often criticized of being overly dramatic and every, every always saying, oh, everything's amazing or everything's terrible. 
Um, but actually, if you look at the polling of the whole country, it's uh, that's exactly what people are saying. And, and the, the swings are just so dramatic. So in June, Gallup has a poll about whether Americans feel they are thriving or not. They had a 14-year record high in June of last year of 59.2%. But then in November, December, it dropped 4.1 percentage points to 55.1%. The biggest drop, uh, the second biggest drop ever, except for the, the first um, when, when um, uh, COVID first hit in, uh, 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 in 2020. And it just, it shows you though that people are really positive and they're very negative and people are confused. And, and also I think more than anything else, as much as President Biden talks about his economic gains and what he's been able to, what his administration has seen, you know, the record numbers of jobs added, uh, pretty impressive um, decrease in unemployment. The American people are not feeling it. They're really not. If you if you look at the the day-to-day lived experience in America, you can see that America socially is tearing itself apart in many ways. Um, in 2020, murders in the U.S. increased by more than 27%, um, the largest percentage increase in 60 years. And then last year, murders went up again. Shootings and 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 and, uh, and murders decreased slightly from the increase in 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 uh, for in 2020, but still, it's just it's unbelievable. Even car crashes went up 18.4 percent in 2021, and then you, you we're all seeing the same viral stories about the unruly passengers on airplanes and school board meetings breaking out into fights, and it just every aspect of U.S. society is facing pressure. And folks are pointing to a number of different culprits, whether it be the changing policing after the George Floyd murders, or whether it be the pandemic, which, in my opinion, you're not seeing the same sort of unruly issues in other other parts of the world that you are. But then a lot of folks on the left, in particular, are pointing to guns. But what's what's interesting about the gun story? That's you know, as an American living in Australia, and this is something that, that I get asked about all the time. Why why doesn't America have healthcare or gun control? And um, with guns, what's what's remarkable is that usually under Democratic presidents, gun purchases go up, right? That's a known thing. And President Obama was the best thing that ever happened to the NRA in many ways because they had record numbers of gun purchases when he was inaugurated. But what we're seeing now, and it started under Trump, but is continuing under Biden, is that it's become bipartisan. Americans are increasingly afraid and they are buying more guns. And the, the data is pretty clear that an increase in, in uh, gun purchases leads to an increase in violence. And so it's it's a pretty worrying uh, situation where we, we are now talking to people like Barbara F. Walter. She has a book out called yeah. How Civil War Starts. And looking at, she was working with the CIA on looking at how to predict civil wars in other countries. And now she's turning that focus inward. And it's just, this is worrying stuff where for so long, the foreign policy community was focused on foreign policy. And now the line is is blurred and the domestic is the foreign, the foreign is the domestic. And so I think moving forward to answer your question, the, the Biden administration is, is some some folks as, as, as Bruce was pointing out before we started are saying they're doing too much and they need to just focus on the economy. But in many ways, Americans want a lot. They just feel overwhelmed. And so they're expecting a lot from the Biden administration and they just feel like they're not delivering. But with that said, I think uh, one, one thing to say about President Biden is, is as much as uh, people are counting him down and out, it's, not, it's important to know that two years ago, he was also counted as down and out. Before South Carolina, he had, everyone was saying, oh, just, just give it up already. His own team has said, they talked about closing down the campaign and what, how to pay people out and all this stuff. But he turned it around. So I think there's plenty of time left for him to turn around before the midterms. But 
on the whole, that doesn't address the systemic challenges that America's facing. Wow, that's sobering, uh, uh, Jared. And um, yeah, I, I did see uh, Barbara Walters. Um, uh, she's been doing quite a bit of media um, promoting the book of late. And indeed, um, you know, I, I you know, knew her when I was US-based. Um, and indeed, the political stability task force uh, set up um, um, originally by then Vice President Gore, and then um, went over to the CIA as sort of a standing project, engaging a number of um, colleagues uh, of mine from um, academia. Um, it is remarkable that the theoretical categories and all the modeling and uh and indeed that was a, that was a very hard-nosed empirical predictive project trying to actually help analysts at the cia um you know what are the signs that a country is about to perhaps fall into into violence um, um, um the us has moved on on a scale um that goes from negative 10 to 10 U.S. used to be at the high point, 10 stable, mature democracy, strong institutions. Now to five, um, the, the light's sort of blinking yellow. The light really starts to take on a more pinkish, reddish hue at around uh, uh, two or one. Um, and it's in that intermediate zone where um, um, you get uh, the risk of, of societal level uh, violence. Um, groups, small groups to medium-sized groups to large-scale groups, starting to organize against one another and take up arms against one another, um, up through and including civil, outright full-on civil war, by the way. Um, but that, you know, the U.S. has taken a big step over the last uh, uh, little while in, in that now. It's still in, in a zone where I don't think anybody's about to say um, it's more likely than not. Um, but it is very confronting, as, as you pointed out, that many of the scholars I know, Barbara included, who work on that, on that work in that domain, are now turning their gaze back to the United States as a as a case um, um, where 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 um, to, to be to be monitored. Um, um, there's quite a few over the. Australian summer, there's been no shortage of, of sort of writing and speculation on, on the future of American democracy. Um, but perhaps a broader question, Jared, and, and that is the question of um, perhaps American social cohesion more broadly um, has, has really started to percolate up in, in, in recent months and weeks. And, and um, uh, we'll, we'll see if we can come back to that over the course of the conversation. Um, um, look, um, well, I want to um, work through some really fantastic questions um, that came in as people registered uh, for this um, for this webinar today, and and we haven't mentioned uh, the T word <laughs> um, uh, as yet, and um, and that is of course uh, Donald Trump. Um, but and our immediate focus, perhaps in a, in, a, in a webinar looking at twenty two, is other midterm elections. But Bruce, you first of all, um, um, is 22 sort of the, how important is 2022 for 2024? Um, and, and I guess my sense, and tell me if you disagree, is that 
nomination is Trump's if he wants it in 24. Um, um, is that your sense? And, and can you perhaps give us the Bruce Wolpe version of, say, what 22 through 24 looks like if Republicans take the House, as seems quite likely, um, yeah. um, in, in, in 22? Uh, thank you. Thank you. Um, for the midterms, uh, I do think that the Republicans will take the House. Um, I've seen solid projections. First of all, the margin is four seats. Average yeah. in a, in a uh, midterm, first term, midterm election is 20, 24, 25 seats. I've seen responsible projections of 35 seats. On gerrymandering alone, Republicans have gained probably eight seats. Democrats have also done well in some states like New York, and Illinois, and they, people know how to, there, there was a congressman from California, Philip, Philip Graham, uh, Philip Burton, who was just fantastic. And he drew, he drew a map in the 1980s and it, it had a democratic district in San Francisco, not connected by land, only by water. And they said, Phil, why'd you do that? He said, that's my contribution to modern art. And, and that is what is happening in gerrymandering seats all around the country. Um, Trump, as we know, is the dominant force in the party. And he is, has several objectives. First, he wants to purge all those Republicans who voted against him. Second, he wants to endorse Republicans who are going to support him. And third, when they take back the House, he's going to say, well, you took back the House because of me. And so yeah. you're loyal to me. Second on Trump, everyone who, who talks with him comes away with the impression, you know, journalist, political colleague, whatever, that he's going to run. So I think we have to take those impressions at their face value and say, yeah, he's going to run. And so he's going to run until he decides not to run. Uh, third, uh, third, right after the midterms is the time. What does he want to do? He wants to own the field and dissuade competitors from contesting against him. And he hates he hates contest contests against him. And so um, he he will have to move, I believe, early in order to try after November. So between November and Christmas or January to clear the field. So then the question is for the Congress, what do the Republicans do? And there is no doubt it will be a even more hostile Congress to Biden being in the majority, at least in the House. I still think the Senate is quite contestable for the Democrats. They might yeah. even gain a seat. Um, but still, House control is very important. And McCarthy, the Republican leader, as, as tough as he is on Biden and how much he has tried to make up to Trump and be Trump, there, there's a significant number in the Republican caucus who believe he's not pro-Trump enough. And he may come under challenge to be more extreme where they may even have a contest for who would be speaker. So uh, so then the question is, what do the Republicans in Congress do in the next, a year from now, in the as the new Congress gets underway? And then the bearing for 2024 is, aside from the question of Biden and what he does, and does he run for re-election and Kamala Harris and a field that looks makes the Iowa caucus look like a small gathering of, of candidates. Um, the question is, what do the Republicans uh, do? And I think the Republicans will be even more hardline than they are now. And I think we will see extremism in the Republican Congress. And so for, so for 2024, since that extremism did not work for them when Trump was president and Democrats made big gains in 2018, I think, I think the, the hope for Biden this year is get as much done right now as possible. Get as much build back better as you can, as much domestic legislation, as much as you can on voting rights or, you know, die trying so that people know what you stand for and then protect it. He's still the president. He'd be able to veto anything that Congress does and use 2024 as an election between extremist Republicans and pragmatic Democrats who stand for you. So that's where that's in, in a briefly, that's how I see it. 
shaping up. I also will just make a prediction that if Republicans do take the House, that they will impeach Biden next year. Wow. Wow. Breaking um, news. <laughs> um, interesting. Well, there's a lot there, Bruce. Um, 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 I, I do want to share some questions around, but since we're so focused on 22, I, I do want to knock off this question uh, uh, from Elias, uh, Halaj from the uh, um, from the ALP, and 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 that's a question about Republican voter suppression tactics um, in in that are underway now. Um, um, I'll, I'll, I'll take that on myself to, to, to a, a little, but I, I do want to hear from others, um, Bruce, Garano, Jared, on this. Um, look, um, it hasn't really made the headlines here in Australia. On any given day, there's always a bigger story out of the US even. Um, but um, there's been a concerted campaign across the United States at state level um particularly in republican well pretty much exclusively in republican controlled states and by republican controlled state i mean a state where the state legislature and or the governor um is is, is in republican hands um and of course the thing to remember about about american elections is that they are state and local affairs and that and that yeah, um uh, now congress does control the way its own elections are conducted but legislation to really imp impose some uniformity from the federal level on down has stalled um, in, in the Congress and um, <clears throat> and they've been unable to um, sort of get an, ex an exemption to the filibuster, um, uh, both Manchin and Sima um, uh, have, have, re have resisted um, um, are doing away with the 60 vote requirement in order to pass um, guarantees of voting rights. So what that has meant is that the states have been free to enact ever more in, in, in these Republican controlled states, some in particular, uh, ever more onerous, burdensome uh, laws about how you about how voting happens, how vote registration happens, and how turnout happens in particular. And then some other things like um, uh, reserving the right to make appointments to local county level um, election boards, uh, in particular in Georgia, so that the Republican state legislature uh, <clears throat> is now making its own appointments uh, to the boards of elections in counties like Fulton County, uh, which is basically Atlanta, um, which is a heavily Democratic um, area. And so what, what will flow from that? Well, what will flow from that? Uh, polling place consolidation, uh, take, literally taking polling places out of, of heavily uh, African-American uh, democratic-leaning neighborhoods of Atlanta. Um, it'll mean fewer uh, volunteers, uh, uh, fewer um, uh, professional staff and, um, at, at polling places, and, and, and of course, um, Republican officials uh, overseeing the vote counting and what all designed to make it a harder for, for Democrats to, to vote and, and be for Democratic votes to be counted uh, after uh, uh, they've, been, they've been cast. There's, there's bizarre things happening in Texas, like it is now uh, apparently, and I, I do need to verify this, but, but laws about uh, if someone is 
standing in line to vote uh, at an overcrowded polling place, uh, giving them um, food or water while they're standing in line uh, is an offence um, uh, under Texas law. And, and put an asterisk on that, I, I do uh, want to just verify that that has become the law of the land there in Texas, but I do want to vote my senses that, that that has happened. Bruce alluded to gerrymandering, um, that Republican state legislatures uh, uh, have been using the fact that we just had a US census uh, conducted at the top of the decade between the O year and the two year is when you get uh, new lines drawn in, in response to population shifts, or at least that's the trigger. Uh, and then uh, taking advantage of GIS technology uh, and, and, um, and whatnot, it's possible now to draw with, with almost surgical precision, maps that satisfy quite weak constitutional criteria uh, about, about, about equal population, um, but nonetheless do a fantastic job locking up the Democratic vote in a small number of districts and very efficiently spreading Republican votes, sometimes that constitutes a minority of votes in a state, such that that converts into majorities of seats and hence control in not just state legislatures, but in congressional delegations. So all those things have been happening um, over the last, I'd say, nine months or so in the United States and are really setting the stage for, um, um, I think, an electoral cycle where Republicans sort of put a thumb on the scale um, of the electoral machinery, if not an elbow, uh, and then perhaps even more onerously uh, from from my perspective, uh, um, is that um, what happens if we um, if there's any doubt about the outcome of a 2024 election um, um, after those onerous burdensome uh, voting uh, laws being passed? If there's still you know what does a repeat of the January 6 fiasco uh, look like uh, in January of 25. So now, um, if, if the House is in Republican hands, um, if state legislatures have reserved the right to, you know, come up with their own slates of electors, if Congress does not amend the Electoral Count Act um, that tries to remove some of the wriggle room um, about which, which electors are, are seated. And so, there's already a lot of, I think, quite undemocratic, frankly, things that have happened in the United States over the last couple of months. But I think there's even more that might drop between now and not necessarily the 22 midterms, but perhaps uh, the 24 presidential election. And that's got a lot of election scholars, uh, myself included, um, quite concerned about the direction the United States is going, and we call it democratic backsliding. And uh, um, there's, you know, and and I'll just conclude by by noting that in political science, the the definition of a democracy is often very simply put like this: Did you have a free and fair election, and did the loser concede power, a transfer of power to the winner? Um, we almost didn't have that uh, last time. We almost did not have the transfer of power. There was a there was a, a, a concerted effort to usurp uh, the election result, and that effort continues to be quite blunt about it. Um, uh, towards um, in in a million little ways, those uh, changes to uh, 
voter registration, voter turnout, but perhaps in some some bigger ways um, that that I, that I'm fearful uh, we may see uh, come to come to play in in 2024. And so there we go. We've got the Simon talking about voting and demo, de- democratic reforms, quote unquote, uh, out of the way. Um, and Simon, if I can just grab Tirana, the mic. please, please. Here. Uh, <laughs> no, I, I do thoroughly agree with that. And I would just, on, on that latter point around the peaceful transfer of power, I mean, we are talking about January 6th insurrection. Um, and depending on, you know, um, how you measure these sort of incidents, um, you know, that wasn't a peaceful protest, right? Um, and uh, we can then also point to that episode as actually something that further eroded American democracy, but not just that, and I'm here putting on that head of the foreign policy person, uh, it has hurt American image abroad. There is absolutely no doubt about that. And um, if we think just uh, back to December, early December, when Biden administration decided to go ahead with the summit for democracy, which in itself isn't, you know, a bad idea as we see basically uh, the the state of democracy around the world erode over the past decade and a half. So this is not something that happened just under Trump. This is a longstanding trend now, right? That we are seeing the decay in the quality of democracies out there because we can also put that on a scale, but also in the number of actually states that could be veritably or regimes that could be very, very, veritably uh, classified as democracies. So in, in those kind of terms, and if we uh, think about, you know, back to the Cold War years, um, it uh, did matter what happened uh in the United States for uh, the way that it conducts its foreign policy and uh, the credibility with which it's actually able to set the agenda, right? So if you think about the reforms, uh, the civil rights reforms uh, and and movement uh, in the 60s, this was crucial to US foreign relations. Uh, And uh, this is something, again, that is coming front and center uh, in, in many ways. And especially as, you know, um, we see often these kind of characterizations of uh, the the major power struggle being defined also in ideological terms, not just geopolitical or geoeconomic, whatever one might think about that kind of characterization and uh, and actually the, the parallels that are being drawn between, say, Soviet Union and China. But again, the point is that uh, America standing in the world uh, with both its allies as well as uh, uh, its rivals, we know the way that this actually has been weaponized and instrumentalized by the likes of China or Russia, actually the images that uh, came out uh, uh, a year ago uh, from in front of the Capitol and within uh, and, and from in inside of it um, and, and the way that they reverber- reverberated around the world. Um, thanks, Karan. Jared, um... Your sense on how, quote unquote, the big lie um, and, um, quote unquote on that, <laughs> the big lie, um, but um, but also January 6th, you know, symptom cause, um, you know, of this broader sort of move towards 
social disintegration and people arming up. Um, how do you see January 6 and, 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 and these chipping away at democratic rights, access to the ballot in that broader picture you were portraying earlier of, um, of, of diminishing levels of social cohesion in the US? Yeah, back in um, back in 2016, if we remember the Hillary Clinton Trump debates, it was really fascinating to see the reactions to them because on the left, everyone's saying, oh, Hillary completely won these debates. There's no question. And on the right, you heard people say Trump completely won these debates. There's no question. Right. It was a Rorschach test. Right. And what's fascinating to me is just how much everything now is a Rorschach test. Right. So if you look at what happened on January 6th and how views have changed since then, 85 percent of Democrats today uh, say that what happened on January 6th was an insurrection trying to overthrow the government. The plurality of Republicans, 56%, say it was people defending freedom. And what, what's fascinating to me is not only are they saying they're defending freedom, but more worryingly is that the Republicans in particular, but also uh, the independents, don't think what happened on January 6th was important. It's, it's people in Washington, people who are actually threatened, who talk about January 6th far more than the rest of the country. The rest of the country, in many ways, has moved on. Um, Democrats say, yes, they should be prosecuted. But if you look at top concerns, it's not a top concern. The economy is a top concern. And so we, we talk a lot about January 6th. But firstly, it's, it's very partisan in terms of reviews. But secondly, it is not felt across the country in the same way that people like us felt it. Our, our, our friends, our networks who were there on that day, it, it, it really is, is shocking. The gulf both between the, the partisan uh, sides as well as between those in D.C. and those outside of D.C. And so I think that has significant implications because you would think that something like January 6th, just like we thought with, with the virus, would unite people. Right. And in the immediate aftermath and when the virus came out and when 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 January 6th happened, everyone was on the same page and how quickly it changed. And that's that's what's worrying is what can unite us anymore? What what can people be on the same page about anymore? And so that's that's what I see as the lasting uh, significance of January 6th is just how even actual violence and death is 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 not does not provide a rally around the flag effect that that we thought it would. Yeah, the, the the rally around the flag effect typically for things like natural disasters or you know an external threat to the country like like nine eleven or, or, or you know something like the, the attacks. Um, 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 Bruce, I, I am curious your take on the political logic of the Gen Six Commission um how aggressively um subpoenaing bannon and now just recently uh, giuliani I, I read this morning has been <laughs> subpoenaed um is this i understand you've got to rev up your own base and and i'm sure there are parts of the democratic base that really want to see people hauled before Congress and made to held to account for their role in inciting uh, uh, Jan Six, but is it as equally as as mobilizing or you know how do you how do you gauge the 
the politics of that in the context of the of the impending uh, uh, midterms? Yeah, um, I agree with uh, what Jared said and, and how you characterized. I think that is accurate. But I think the way to think of it, first of all, it's still in, pro in progress. It was started as a fully bipartisan effort. There were going to be two co-chairs, Democrat and Republican. The Republicans didn't want to play at all because of the embarrassment and they believed it would be a political attack. They would not look good, would not be helpful for the midterms. And uh, But the Democrats were determined. It, it says people feel if, if your house was invaded and ransacked, you want to find, you want to justice and you're wounded, you're hurt. And that's what has happened here in a large way. Um, the process is still unfolding. What's gonna happen in the next month or two are going to be public hearings. Now, I'm not going to say that's going to be Watergate all over again and John Dean and so forth, but that could begin to change public perceptions about it. But regardless of whether there's a political payoff, Democrats are determined to see it through and make the most documented um, uh, record of what happened so that people can understand and appreciate it. So it, it's going to continue. It may not help them in November at all. I'm sure we'll amp up Republican opposition, but uh, they, the uh, many members, most members of Congress actually, whether they support it or not, feel violated by what happened on that day. And they want that, they want justice done and, and, and accountability, a reckoning. So that will happen. And we'll keep an eye out for those hearings. Um... Uh, another question, Bruce, this has come in live from, from Justin uh, uh, Patey. Um, quote, is it remotely possible that cinema and mansion will realize they have to allow passage of some of the outstanding agenda of the president and allow some reform of the filibuster, at least on voting rights? I do. And uh, the, what's been presented by Schumer, the Democratic leader in the Senate, is uh, we will have a separate procedure on the filibuster on this legislation. And the last time that the filibuster was broken on a civil rights issue goes back to the 60s and the Voting Rights Act and the Civil Rights Act. And that was when you had a full filibuster. You took the floor and everyone was yeah. Jimmy Stewart and everything like that. But what the, 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 the filibuster on voting rights in the 60s went for 60 days. And over that time, people could hear it and see it and realize that the white supremacist position had no standing. And over time, that majority against the, the voting rights bill eroded and, and ultimately was beaten. And so this becomes a holy crusade. And going back to what you said earlier about voter suppression and what it looks like, I and Biden mentioned it in the press conference, I think in November, even in states where the most restrictive election laws have been passed, that voters are going to come out and stand in line and take, it's, it's the equivalent of being hosed down or, uh, you know, Bull Connors people would thought they're going to stand there and, sh and show they're going to testify for democracy by enduring even the most repressive tactics to cast their votes to for their candidates and show that, that they believe in democracy. And so uh, I think that's a dynamic that will work to a certain degree and pay some benefits. But there's no doubt all the contentiousness that all three of you have talked about and, and the risk to American democracy that's posed that is extremely powerful right now. Yeah, G Georgia made, you know, um, the incredible uh, work that um, Stacey Abrams and, and Democratic ground game in Georgia around her that she's sort of the, the, the national kind of leader of. Um, that is the tip of the spear. Um, um, with the the attempt by the state legislature to, but the counter mobilization that, that these 
at least sometimes in gender is, is, is really something to keep in mind. And, and for me, you know, um, how that plays out in Georgia, um, can they, uh, will these moves by the state legislature be successful in denting what is just a, one of the more remarkable pieces of um, political entrepreneurship um, in, in recent American history, um, uh, the Democratic get ground game in, in Georgia that, as we saw now, two Democratic senators and, and a state that narrowly went for a Democratic presidential candidate. Um, uh, Garana, um, I want to, uh, unsurprisingly, uh, a U.S. study center based in Sydney. We've got a few questions about the intersection of foreign policy and, and domestic politics. Um, I, I'm wondering if I could um, turn our attention to that in the 10 minutes we have remaining uh, to some, see if we get a few of these questions done. And uh, uh, Thomas Solm from the Asia Society asked about, again, we, I'd say we'd come back to it, and that is how important will China and Indo-Pacific strategy be for Biden a year with midterm elections? And again, you know, just harking back to our earlier observation about the prominence of Russia um, in this political discourse at the moment. Sure, and that's a great question and obviously an understandable one. Uh, so I'll be cutting the grass for um, Ashley and, and the team over at the foreign policy and defense team. Um, look, in terms of the midterms, I would say that foreign policy issues don't rank very highly in general, unless the, the, the country is in a state of war uh, and there is something really big on that front happening. So, you know, when it, uh, uh, comes to to issues like uh, deploying troops or withdrawing troops or or something along those lines that could actually be presented as a as a sort of issue that could be put um, as a matter of a referendum, right? Um, so um, in that sense, I don't think it's going to feature in the midterms in a way that some of the issues that Bruce alluded to in the opening remarks will, right? Uh, some of these, the way that uh, various issues. Uh, of domestic uh, policy of, of domestic wins and failures will be portrayed and the way that uh, Republicans will run with them. Um, but certainly uh, what uh, the, the sense at least is in terms of Biden's Indo-Pacific strategy thus far is one where um, somewhat strangely and maybe uh, the, the extent to which Biden administration wouldn't want to admit, we have seen a lot of continuity in terms of uh, the substance, right? The, this is still in terms of the interim uh, strategic uh, uh, kind of guidance uh, papers that we've seen so far, we've definitely uh, uh, seen the continuity from Trump administration, the talk of uh, systemic rivalry, right? Uh, great power rivalry, uh, strategic con competition, and, and uh, uh, some of these things are uh, those that cut across both administrations. Um, so meaning Trump and, and Biden, the difference is in the instruments that are used to actually execute this strategy. And 
here we see a lot more of uh, Biden's at least talk about uh, working with allies, with actually ele elevating some of the formats that might have already been recognized by the Trump administration, like the quadrilateral dialogue, the quad, but also the introduction of some other minilateral forms uh, of cooperation, as we've seen with the announcement of AUKUS, obviously, that has ruffled a lot of feathers, I can say, certainly as someone who's been uh, going back and forth between Australia and Europe. Um, and certainly, again, uh, if I may, just uh, very briefly kind of to privatize this space to say that actually there is a lot more talk about transplanting the transatlantic cooperation into the Indo-Pacific, which is going to be something to follow uh, in this year, uh, precisely because both the European Union and NATO are about to unveil their uh, uh, strategic documents, which both have the acronym of SC. One is a strategic con compass on part of the European Union that's coming up in just two months' time. And then in June, we are going to have the new strategic concept uh, for NATO, the first one after over 10 years now, uh, which will both have China feature very prominently in them. And so US and European allies have been working on, on these matters, uh, especially when it comes to cooperation on trade, uh, on technology, but uh, there are also some indications that this could uh, go as, as far as, as some uh, defense cooperation with uh, a limited number of uh, European states. So uh, this is maybe, again, a story that's maybe more interesting for policy wonks, I would say, than necessarily as an issue that's going to be put on the ballots, but uh, certainly uh, uh, watch this space over over the course of the year and certainly again one other thing Biden uh, uh, and, and his administration are very uh, would be very happy to see Europeans uh, uh, start punching a bit uh, uh, more of, of uh, their weight uh, behind these initiatives J Jared um your thoughts on in the defense foreign policy space what jumps out on the agenda? On the US side. I and mean, I wanted to perhaps look at that through two lenses. One is the impending, you know, the electoral context. Uh, we've got the midterm coming. But also, you know, from a position of Australian equities here, uh, the diffusion of US strategic focus, the competition for US strategic attention between Russia and um and Europe uh and, and the Indo-Pacific. Um, um sort of opening it up to you for a few observations as we get down to about four minutes to Yeah, I'll just quickly say, I think we've, uh, you and I and the team at UCC have seen some recent polling that is pretty pretty surprising how you would think how much China is dominating the news that Americans would be all in for saying that China, Asia, Indo-Pacific is the dominant priority theater for the US. And it isn't necessarily. I think when, when you say like what is, when you ask Americans what their their top what the most important thing to focus on is for the government to focus on, they they don't necessarily say China. And so a part of me wonders if Americans see China as a threat, but not the same level as they as uh, and they see China still as like trying to be like the U.S., but really isn't an actual significant threat. Whereas all the D.C. insiders, all the foreign policy, national security types who who don't even work on China often say China is the number one threat and the number one competitor. You look at 
like foreign policy, you look at trade, um, you look at, at, at security, it, it really is, is uh, again, that, that gulf between what's happening in DC and what's happening in the rest of the country. Um, when you say allies to an average American, they think of Europe, they don't necessarily think of Asia. And so I think um, that that's one thing that that a lot of folks in DC are, are are trying to process. How do we actually pivot not just the DC types to to uh, Asia because they're all already there, but how do you pivot the rest of the country to understand the strategic importance of Asia? And uh, so, yeah, I, I don't want to go beyond that to to let Bruce get in a few a few words. Yeah, Bruce. Um... The, the salience of foreign policy and, and <laughs> security in in midterm elections, uh, perhaps this midterm election? Well, when, when the country is under threat and you're not meeting it, that's a problem. If, if Putin invades Ukraine, then it's going to be who lost Ukraine. And America will be leak, weak. And then, you know, Garana does China take lessons from that and say, well, maybe we should move earlier on Taiwan than we otherwise want to. But I think the most important issue, especially with the new ambassador, Caroline Kennedy coming in, is what uh, both Garana and Jared talked about. Uh, Garana, the question of trust in America's democracy, and Jared, you know, th the baseline is there's too much guns, there's too much violence, healthcare system doesn't work. But now we have this uh, added issue of whether America really does have a sustainable democracy. Is there going, are we going to see a different order of magnitude on America's future? And so her mission, aside from managing the security and strategic intelligence military relationship, is going to be to project America's soft power and confidence, as President Biden has acknowledged. We have work to do to show that America is back and will have um, be vital for the future of Australia, the rest of the world. So that will be something really interesting to watch. I'm sure she's up for it, up to it, and will... Um, but, but in the meantime, we're nervously watching everything else that unfolds in this very tumultuous year ahead. Yeah. Um, thank you for getting a, a reference to um, uh, the ambassador nominee, um, uh, Carolyn Kennedy. Um, um, any thoughts, Bruce, about uh, you and I have talked offline about this. I, I just think the temptation for the Ted Cruz's and Josh Hawley's and Tom Cotton's of this world to um, uh, conservative Republican senators to make life uncomfortable for her, just given the Kennedy name, um, that that could be a rocky nomination road. But it, do, do you see that derailing or slowing down or your, your take on that? I want to see it differently, so I'll say I think it will be differently in that uh, the, Sen the Senate, even those senators you mentioned, have made exceptions for former senators like Jeff Flake, for example, going to Turkey. For a uh, family of senators, so Regina Kennedy is now ambassador to Austria, and Caroline Kennedy certainly has, and she was married to Ted, I mean, a big liberal. So it was. <laughs> uh, I do think that um, there will not be uh, big issues for, uh, I think she'll be confirmed promptly. I would expect her here around Easter. Okay. And look, that takes us to the top of the hour. And um, so we'll wrap it up here um, and because it's getting quite late in Zagreb, I imagine. Um, 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 and look at that. Look at that Croatian countryside behind you. <laughs> that is Sydney University being built uh, in the 19th century. So I just wanted to have a connection to, um, to the old stomping ground. 
Well, well done. Um, <laughs> thanks for thanks for point. That's that's remarkable. That, that's I would have I would have picked um, somewhere in uh, Oxford or Cambridge, but 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 well done. Um, um, and Jared, thank you. Um, and um, and look, happy New Year again. And and look, um, COVID is having its way with with us at the US Study Centre at the moment. I won't go into details, but but like many households and many institutions at the moment around Australia and indeed around the world, um, um, our, our people um, uh, and, and their families uh, are suffering at the moment. Uh, and uh, our thoughts are, are with, with them, uh, obviously, but our thoughts are also, we understand um, um, how, how this is impacting um, the, the households and, and families and, and way of living for so many of you um, and and we're we're so pleased that um, we're able to continue to to bring content and and, and fulfill the mission of the u.s study center through this way and so uh, so um stay safe uh stay sage and 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 may the u.s study center uh, help you uh, certainly with, with with the latter perhaps not the former um, but thanks again, Bruce. Thanks, Grana. Thanks, Jared. Uh, thanks to Janine, um, uh, keeping us all um, squared away on the back end. Uh, and we'll see you at another webinar in the not too distant future. Bye.